Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and this week I have a special episode for you all. It is not our typical episode with a woman who works in the sport industry. Instead, it is with a young woman who the sports industry failed. And that might sound a bit dramatic, but the sports industry at the collegiate level, at the national governing body level, failed a lot of these young women. My guest this week is Morgan McCall. Morgan was a dancer and she's a survivor of Larry Nassar. Morgan and I met when I went up to Michigan State in February. It was not expected. Um, A couple of days before I traveled up, I noticed that the um, Michigan State University Law School um, for their sports law symposium had added a couple of speakers. And that was Morgan McCall, Larissa Boyce, and Jessica Smith, all of whom are survivors of Larry Nassar's abuse and the institutionalized failure of the sports industry. I was really excited to meet them. I had watched um, all of the impact statements and I felt honored to have the ability to meet these women whose whose lives had been shattered, um, but who were so strong. Um, and I wanted to find a way to help. Um, I didn't like feeling helpless, which I recognize is privileged in that situation, right? Um but Morgan and I really hit it off and we've stayed in touch and she agreed to be on the podcast. So a couple of things to note. This episode does go into the sexual abuse of children. Um, I want you to take a couple of seconds. This might be a tough episode. Um, much like our episode with Carrie Potts um, in episode number nine. Um, So do what you need by way of self-care, even if that means not listening. But I really do hope that you all do listen if you're able to. It's really important that these stories are shared and that they're not forgotten Um, The media hasn't done a really great job of keeping um, these women's stories at the forefront and holding the institutions that failed them to account. So please do listen. Um, If you need more resources um, regarding sexual abuse, sexual assault, please visit RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org. Or call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 
hope and at rain.org um, they have an online chat as well if um, if you're in a space where you're not comfortable calling uh, so we have no advertisers during this episode either um, we're we're giving it all the space it needs I'll apologize in advance I am a little awkward at times during the conversation. And I think part of that is because I'm not a trained journalist. Part of that is this is really tough thing, things to talk about. And, um, you know, Morgan has become a friend of mine and I know every time she speaks about it, it hurts a little. So, um, I hope, uh, I hope I did this right. Um, and I hope you all listen and, I hope it lights a fire in some of you like it has with me. Um, it's, you know, situations like this, uh, like the one that she and 300 other women, <laughs> just from this one one man, um, have gone through that make me want to help change sport for good. So um, I hope it lights a fire under you to do the same and uh, to be a good ally. So let's get on to the interview with Morgan McCall. Hi, Morgan. Hi. It is so good to talk to you, my friend. Oh my gosh. I am so happy to hear your voice. (laughs) Um, So my listeners are going to know that this is a bit different than our normal interviews, um, although after doing a little more research into you, you know, my Google stalking that I do, <laughs> um, there, there is an interesting little connection. So I think it'll be great. Um, okay. And I want to start off by asking you what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were a little girl. I, first of all, so I had about two dreams <laughs> when I was younger. I really wanted to be a professional ballerina. Um, with the New York City Ballet, and I also wanted to be a doctor. With the ballerina, you actually were a dancer, correct? Yes, I was. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into dancing? Yeah, um, so I was two years old, and my mom, um, her children, or her friend's children, were in a performance of Alice in Wonderland at a local dance studio. And, you know, I was so small. I, my mom says I fell in love, um, but she brought me into becoming potty trained with dance. And ever since I was potty trained and I was in dance classes and I loved it. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Can I tell you my dance story? That's a real story. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. So one time when I was little, um, my parents thought it might be a good idea to put me into tap class. Ooh, the loudest of them all. Mm. Um, but aside from that, there's something else you should know about me. Okay. I am the least coordinated human being you've ever met in your life. Oh, so that was cacophony. Yeah, that worked out yeah. n- not well for anybody. <laughs> And then I think, like, I <laughs> thought that I knew how to do Irish jigs. Welcome, welcome oh. to my very Irish Catholic family. 
Uh, <laughs> I don't think I ever knew how to actually do an Irish jig, Morgan. I think I just made that shit I, up. You know what? You got to do what you got to do. If it's in you, it's in you. Let yeah. it out. <laughs> so you, um, you know, from obviously an early age with the dancing and you continued throughout, you know, your, I don't know, schooling and teenage Up years. Until I graduated high school. Yeah. Were, um, what does that look like as you're going through your teenage years and thinking about what to do for college and for, you know, long-term career? If you're a ballerina, what, what are your options to go that route? Um, so, you know, as you're growing up, being a child transitioning into being a teenager, it eats up a lot of your time. And you end up sacrificing a lot of the traditional childhood experiences for dance. Um, And as you grow older, you pretty much have two channels that you can go through. You can go to college and study dance, or you can go straight into a professional company. And so what were you thinking? Were you thinking of going to school and then maybe into a company? I, so... A little bit earlier in high school, um, maybe late middle school, I injured myself and I tore both of my hip flexors. How does that happen, Morgan? Very traumatic. It's called a grand jeté entrenon and it is a bitch if you don't land it correctly. It also sounds Um, evil. (laughs) Very, very French. Um, But that injury really kind of took me off track to be a professional. So at that point, I really had to sit down and say, okay, school is my priority. Um, and I still dance in college, but it, it's certainly not at a professional level. And you teach dance as well, right? I do, yeah. What, um, what ages do you teach? All ages, um, two to like 15, I think is, I've taught them all. Aw, do you, do you teach in ballet or other... I actually, so I teach ballet, I teach tumbling, lyrical, modern, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of a studio filler. So whatever they need, I'll, I'll jump in and teach it. That sounds like it's fun. It is. It is. You get kind of a range of experiences. Yeah. Your, um, your injury is part of the reason why we even know each other. It um, is, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about how, how you went about getting treatment and, um, and you know, kind of what happened therein? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was 12 and, you know, I, I did a tour jeté, landed terribly, collapsed um, and could not figure out what was wrong with me. Uh, I was kind of bounced around from pediatrician to pediatrician. And then the girls at my dance studio finally sat me down and said, you know what, you have to see this. You have to see a professional doctor who knows what he's doing. Um, And that was the day that I marched myself into the MSU sports medicine clinic to see former Dr. Larry Nasser. And that's the beginning of a really interesting story that I never thought I'd find myself in the middle of. 
you when you went to see him the first time, I mean, you're 12, so you're obviously with your parents, right? Mm-hmm. I was. And how how was he represented? Like what did what did people tell you about this guy? It was lots of praise and accolades. Um, girls from my studio had gone to see him and swore he was the best, um, that he was the expert in dance, and he knew what a grand jeté entrenal was when I told him that's how I hurt myself. Um, there was Olympic memorabilia lining the walls of his office and like signed cards from ballerinas that I looked up to. Um, even girls that I knew were on his walls. It was very much kind of this marketing ploy that you're sold at a young age that this is the man with the magic hands who's going to get you back to dance. And it's creepy. Yeah. I mean, part of me, like, it's so funny, you know, you and I have talked about doing this podcast and it's hard for me to ask you questions knowing what some of the answers are going to be. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think, and something you and I have talked about is that it's important for people to know what happened and to, to be able to give some uh, voice to it and put a face behind it. Right. Yeah, of course. Do you mind um, telling us uh, about some of those visits that you made to him? I can. Um, I was instructed to wear booty shorts to see him so that he would have access to my muscles, um, which I would change into once I got into his office. Um, Upon that point, I would be stretched, poked, prodded. kind of maneuvered around the office being sized up really um being told what was wrong with me that appointment uh from there you would make your way to the exam table where he would start his pressure point massage um your back your legs your glutes and eventually making his way into really inappropriate areas um, beneath a towel And, you know, I don't say this a lot, but I remember the first time that he molested me so clearly because it hurt in such a different way than I was used to during an appointment with him. Um, Yeah. And you were 12. I was either 12 or 13. I can't remember the first time exactly, but it was in an early appointment with him. Like, I don't remember many details, Mm -hmm. you know, like which appointment or what I was wearing, but I will remember that moment and that pain forever. And I remember trying to convince myself that it was a misunderstanding. What was your, your reaction or, um, if not reaction, but you know, did you 
did you talk to anyone about it after that happened? Um, if did it not feel right? And it, it didn't feel right. Um, I was so uncomfortable, but I was also embarrassed because my mom was right there and I did not want to tell her anything had happened. Um, that night I went to dance because I was, I was not dancing, but I was still a teacher's assistant. So I made the mistake of disclosing to someone who was also a victim of Nasser. Um, so the woman that I had told that he was touching me inappropriately assured me that it was fine, that it was medical, that he did it to her and all of the other girls and that I shouldn't think twice about it. And so I never did. Have you spoken with any of those and not, I'm not asking this in a a blame type way, but have you, have you heard from or spoken to any of those women um, since all of this came out? Interestingly enough, I really haven't. And it's it's been very silent. Yeah. Um, Which is hard because I grew up with these people. I I can only imagine how hard it must be. are they, they haven't come forward at all um, of that group? Privately, privately they have, um, yeah, but, but they are still under the impression that what he did was medical and appropriate. For, for those who, you know, haven't followed the story super, super closely, um, what was the medical treatment allegedly that he he said that he was giving or and that others claimed he was giving so he explained it to certain girls i never got the explanation it was just kind of ambushed upon me but according to other girls he instructed them that there was a special pressure point in their vagina that connected with other parts of their body um, and would heal anything from a twisted ankle to a broken finger Um, I never heard the term internal pelvic floor work or internal pelvic floor therapy, which is what he claims it is now, Mm -hmm. um, until I was in Ingham County court for his sentencing. There was nothing medical explained to me about what he was doing. It's an afterthought, right? It's not, it's not a real, it's, it's a legitimate medical treatment when it's performed with gloves with medical lubricant and with a chaperone in the room. What he was doing was malpractice at the most generous. Right. Um, one of the, one of the things that you point out in that was the gloves. Um, and in your experience and, and from what we heard from other women, um, he, he wasn't using gloves, correct? He never used gloves. And I never was under the impression that he was supposed to. No one made that clear to me. What kind of doctor did you want to be, Morgan? I was torn between being an anesthesiologist or being a sports medicine doctor. What was that what was that experience like? In the moment it was amazing because I thought I was getting my first step towards achieving my dream. I remember we're talking about writing a letter of recommendation for me someday. Um, when I think back about it, I get sick because I am sure that when I was shadowing him, I watched other girls get abused or assaulted in front of me and I didn't even realize it. 
Um, and I probably saw 15 patients with him that day. I was under the impression that he was a great guy and that he was an amazing physician and he was everything that I thought I wanted to be. What, um, what was your general relationship like with him? Um, was it, you know, the kind of relationship that you think of when you think of a doctor and a young patient where, you know, communications go through the parents and you, you know, interact during those periods of time or was it something different? It was very unconventional. Um, we were Facebook friends. He would message me on Facebook. Um, I think I had his phone number. I think I texted him to get into a, an appointment at his house once. Um, things that in hindsight are red flags. Um, but I thought that he was just being friendly or that he liked me. How did he make you feel? Very special. Um, and that's part of the act. He had a nickname for me. He would always follow whatever I was doing. He would ask me about school, um, about other girls at my studio, how they were doing. He just went out of his way to be so um, just inviting and warm and just really put on a persona of a nice guy. And I bought it as a child. How, how was his relationship with your mother? Very different. Yeah. Very different. It was much more professional. Um, she would just take me to the appointment. Um, it was usually me and him talking the most, most of the time. How many years um, and, you know, how long were you receiving treatment from him? Um, a span of three years, according to my medical record. So from ages 12 to ages 15. And when you were trying to figure out where to go to college, how did you you know, make that decision? What were, what were some of the things that you were thinking about um, when going through that process? Uh, first and foremost, financial affordability. Like I just, I had to find something that was feasible for my life. Um, but I was also looking for a college with a really good pre-med program, um, a really good med medical school. And I, I ended up being torn between MSU and U of M. Um, in the 11th hour, I chose U of M. Um, did you choose U of M before or after you came to realize that you had been abused? It was around the same time. Would you mind sharing how you came to the realization that you had been abused? And by that, I mean yeah. the confirmed realization since you had already thought so when you were younger. 
yeah, it took a really long time for me to accept that what had happened actually occurred. Uh, I remember getting a phone call from my mom uh, telling me, you know, I want you to hear this from me first. Larry's in trouble. And that was in 2016 after Rachel Den Hollander came forward to a newspaper and shared her story. Um, and I initially defended him because I was so brainwashed into believing that this was a legitimate medical treatment. I thought any woman who thought it was inappropriate had misunderstood. Um, and a few months later, they found child pornography at his home in his possession tens of thousands of images. And at that point, I just couldn't deny anymore that things were so confusing and so sinister beneath what I thought was a friendly facade. It was really the um, seizure of his child pornography that woke me up. And I still didn't tell anyone for a really long time. Mm. Rachel coming forward was, um, it kind of happened in like a really roundabout way, right? Yeah. Um, to my knowledge, and I might be mucking it up a little bit, the Indie Star was running a story about general abuse in the gymnastics community, and Rachel reached out to them with her story, and they only ran it because another gymnast at the same time came forward and corroborated what she said. And from there, they took off, and it turned into something huge. Um, I know that. Um you know, from the reading and, and you and I've mentioned there are now over 300 women who have come forward. Yes. Um, and it started with one. Right. And it's insane to think about. Right. And I mean, to back it up even further, there had been reports 20 years ago. Um, I think Larissa, Larissa Boyce was one of those, right? Who? Yes. She came forward in 1997. And just nothing was done. She was threatened by her coach and told that if she filed a report that she would face serious consequences. And she was made to apologize to Larry and sent back to him for four more years of abuse. That coach is, and that's pretty much the cycle with every woman that came forward about Larry's abuse because there are many of them. Right. Uh, that coach that you reference is John Geddert, correct? No, actually, it's the head gymnastics coach at Michigan State University, Kathy Clagus. Oh. And she was allowed to retire. Right. Well, there's that. John Getter has a lot of problems of his own. Yeah, I was going to say, we don't need to assign him any any extra ones. Um, no. After, 
after it starts sinking in and you're allowing yourself to accept, um, you know, what has occurred. Um, I mean, and this is what, five years after you were last receiving treatment? Ish? Three. Three? Two. Two. Two? Sorry, okay. two. Yeah. Um, it was very, it was, so my case is a little unconventional because there's not a lot of time between the dates of my appointments and all of this coming about and becoming we- public. You're such a little peanut, but you're so um, mature. I mean, when we met, I I was, I'm like, you're a little itty bitty, but (laughs) I hope nobody gets in your way. Um, And you're just very well spoken that I think I forget how young you are at times, Um, which makes us all the more. I was not always able to express myself about this, though. That's the weird part. I don't think that's weird, um, but do you mind um, expounding on that? Yeah. um, I first came public in November of 2017 with my status as a Nassar survivor. Um, And soon after, I was contacted by a news outlet that wanted to give an interview. And, you know, it was a group interview. It was a radio interview. It was going to be edited heavily. I knew all of this and I still had probably the worst panic attack of my life. Um, I ran out of the room with the poor reporter kind of standing shocked in it and hid in the bathroom and had to leave. I couldn't talk about it yet. Well, and you know, 2017, what was it? 2016 or early 2017 that you you had come to really accept what had happened? It was early 2017. So all of this has been a huge turnaround. I came public and two weeks later I was doing an interview. Um, It's been, you know, a crazy pace with this case. Yeah. How, what, what were the months leading up to that? Like before you came out? Um, What, what was some of what you were working through or, um, you know, trying to decide? I was still really far removed from it. I tried to pretend that um, nothing was happening. I didn't really tell my friends that I had gone and made a police report. Um, I was, you know, I had just graduated from high school. I'd been trying to keep my grades up. Um, and, you know, I was preparing to go away to college in the fall. I was so distanced from it that when I attached my name and face, I don't think I was prepared for the tidal wave of emotion that comes over you when you truly have to sit with it and realize that that's, that that's your life and that's you, that's your name, that's your face. And that happened to you. By coming out public, by declaring yourself, one of his survivors, you, every person that you would then see that knew you would know. Yes. When did you tell your parents? I think I told my mom in around February or March of 2017. 
Um, so at that point, he'd been arrested for five months, six months. Um, and I just couldn't avoid the questions anymore. I prefaced it with, well, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't get mad. Oh, honey. And I was just so confused at that point in my life. I was just trying to hold it together together to get through high school. What was the conversation like, if you don't mind sharing? Although I understand it's a, a private moment, so if you don't want to, you, you know. I actually love to talk about it because my mom's reaction was exactly what I think a survivor needs when they disclose to someone. Um, she respected my choice that I wasn't ready to make a police report or to come public yet or to make any sort of rash decision, um, which she had the power to do for me because I was still a minor. Mm -hmm. um, she let me sit with it and process it on my own timeline. And she just said that she would support me no matter what I decided to do. Um, and I think that really cemented a bond with, between me and her, we were already close, but to afford me that respect in the in lot. Um, and I, I hurt because so many people don't get that opportunity. So many people's parents leave them when they disclose their status as a survivor. Um, I was just really lucky. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that obviously what I think doesn't matter about that, but you know, it's, <laughs> it opens, it opens up a larger discussion yeah. about how, how people can react and how you can support a survivor. You don't have to walk them straight to the police station. You don't have to like get them a rape kit. You can just say, okay, I'm here with you and I respect what you want to do. And I don't think enough people realize that's, that's an option. Or, you know, in the alternative, you don't have to get so angry that you almost create a secondary trauma, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I know that um, some people have, you know, and rightfully, you know, it, obviously getting upset, you know, because somebody has hurt your loved one is a natural reaction. But I think people forget that in these types of situations, you've, you've already been exposed to a level of violence and your um, feeling safe is really, it can be hard in that moment, right? Right. Um, and so an outburst or ang super angry reaction or anything remotely violent can be re-traumatizing. Guilt. And I've seen it through this experience makes a lot of people behave in really irrational ways. Um, and so certain people, when they find out that their loved one has been abused, you know, get angry and lash out and throw things. And some people just slip away yeah. and never speak again. Um, and it's sad because, you know, it's emotionally difficult to process whether you're the survivor or you're the secondary survivor. You're the person who has to watch that person reckon with that pain that they've experienced. Right. Right. 
Well, because, you know, uh, sexual assault um, and any type of of violent assault um, has an impact greater than just the, you know, on it, like it has like waves, right? Like you think Absolutely. of like a rock in a, in a lake type deal. Um, and it's differing, you know, it's, you know, the pain I feel listening to you talk about this because I care about you is different than what you've experienced. Right. But it's still real. Right. Um, how, how did you come to the decision to speak at the victim impact statements during, um, I don't even remember which case it was because there have been so many, uh, but in Aqualina's, in Aqualina's court. So obviously, so I had been public in November of 2017 and sentencing took place in January of 2018. Um, So at that point I was pretty well established um, and feeling more confident in my ability to speak out about what had happened to me and the circumstances surrounding it. And so I, you know, my case was under the jurisdiction of Ingham County and that was going to be my only option to address him again. So I was always very sure leading up in those months that I was going to speak and that I was going to speak as a public survivor. Had he been in touch with you, um, you know, after the first, um, I don't know, bit of trouble started? Fortunately not, but I know a lot of women that he did reach out to, women that he had assaulted and he sought, you know, condolences or or pity from. How did it feel uh, giving your statement? Uh, It's hard to put into words because it was such a... stressful moment Mm -hmm. um that was the first time I had seen him um like face to face after he had been in prison for months and after he had lost so many sorry boyfriend sneezed it's okay tell him I say hi (laughs) (laughs) so obviously says hi um (laughs) after he had lost so much weight and he was so gaunt um, and he was really the shell of the person that I knew when I was a child. Um, I also, you know, you have the added pressure of this is televised Mm -hmm. on pretty much every news station. Um, This is being recorded by audio video. Your words are being written down. Your face is being plastered on a screen somewhere. Um, and also just how do you put years of pain and confusion and inner turmoil into one statement and how do you ever get it right? Um, that's something that I struggled with a lot leading up to it. I almost didn't want to give one because I just felt like I couldn't put anything into words. How did you in that moment? It was really cathartic though. Yeah. Like when I stepped away, so it was like building, building, building this tension. But when I stepped away, it was like I left everything with him. 
How did you go about writing your statement? Oh, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote it about 50 times. And, you know, as women were coming forward that were previously not going to speak during the sentencing, my speaking slot, my testimony got pushed back by a couple days. Mm -hmm. And so every night I would expect that I was gonna have to speak the next day and I would stay up until like one or two in the morning, rewriting it frantically, just like losing my mind. So there's, there've been like probably over a hundred drafts of it. But my exaggeration, probably like 30 drafts of my impact statement that I would just trash after a few hours. Did you, um, did you handwrite those or was it on a computer? Oh, I think I lost you again. I was typing them out. You, did you save all of the drafts? They're, so it's in Google Drive, so technically they are all saved. But I don't know that I can bring my materials. I know that uh, it's probably not something that you think you'll want to look at, but those may be interesting to you later on. I'm sure. I'm uh, sure that I'm going to kind of have a meltdown when I look at those yeah. for the next time. Yeah. Um, what has it been like having all of these other women coming forward and um, I guess becoming what Judge Aquilina, you know, kind of dubbed you all the sister survivors. It's wonderful and also it's horrible. Um, there is a power between us that is kind of difficult to explain, but, you know, knowing that you're not alone helps a lot when mm -hmm. you're going through something like this and knowing that if I am having a bad day, I have 300 women to turn to who can understand me completely and be what I need in that moment. It's something that I'm really lucky to have. But at the same time, knowing that there are 300 women who have come forward with the exact same experience as me um, is disgusting and makes me nauseous and is upsetting. It should never have been that way. There should not be this many of us. And I know that there are thousands more that haven't come forward. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. What, um, how do you all, you know, because everyone's kind of in different places now. How do you all keep in contact and, and support each other? So we have multiple group messages going on at all times. We pretty much text each other all day, every day. <laughs> um, but we also, for like people who, you know, might be out of the country or far away in other parts of the country from other people, we have a Facebook group, um, a private Facebook group for all of the sister survivors who are interested in joining, um, where people can talk about the pain they're feeling that day. They can post pictures of their dogs and cats. They can <laughs> post pictures of their kids. They can say, oh, I can't sleep. Does anyone have any tricks for sleeping right now? Um, it's kind of a survivor's dream 
support network. It's really strange, um, but a great use of technology. I can only imagine how uh, reassuring that must be at times um, to know that there are other people having similar, you know, issues with sleep or, you know, maybe concentrating or just not feeling right. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's a luxury that a lot of women aren't provided. I mean, like just thinking about the technological aspect, if I was born 20 years ago and this happened, I, I wouldn't have the same kind of resources available. Right. Um, and in that way, it's just amazing. I'm going to ask you another question about Facebook in a second. I want, okay. <laughs> I'm like, I'm putting in pain because there's something that I, I do want to ask about the victim impact statements and the sentencing real quick. Okay. Um, how did it feel or, you know, what was it like sitting there and having Judge Aguilina, I can't ever say her name. Um, You're saying it correctly. You're good. Oh, good. Um, you know, provide you with a response immediately after your statement and then also the you know a response to each and every other woman who came forward and and how she handled um the statements and then the sentencing um so i have kind of an unconventional perspective on it just because i came forward so much earlier um than a lot of the women that were speaking so for me you know I didn't necessarily need to hear that assurance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what it stood for was way greater than my own personal healing. Um, it was a symbolic act of listening to a survivor testimony and acknowledging it and empowering it, which does not happen very often in society and certainly doesn't happen in the court of law very often. Um, I am also just really grateful at the way that just in, in general throughout this case, like with, you know, the prosecutor and the detective, Andrea Mumford, the way that they were able to utilize the law to empower women throughout this process, um, in their own individual, like personal way through their work, um, was also really cool and I think marks a change for the way that we handle these cases in the in the future. Mm-hmm. The prosecutor was um Pavulitis? Angie Povolitis. Povolitis. Yep. Um who has now moved on to something even better. Mm-hmm. Um I I noticed, you know, some of that and I think I told you that um when I met you that I, I, I have three screens plus a TV in front of me at all times at work. I don't always have the TV on, but what I, what I did during those days was on one of my three screens, like three computer screens. I had y'all's impact statements up the live streams. That's wild. Yeah. That's crazy. 
And, um, and I made sure, you know, when I was in my office that I was listening to it, um, which had the interesting effect of me wanting to do violent things. And, um, but also, I don't know, ignited something within me, which I, I think is also why you and I have connected, right? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, while watching that, I just, I kept sitting there going, you know what, for somebody who is just coming around to understanding what happened to them, um, or who's feeling guilt or shame because they didn't come forward earlier, um, you know, and, and quote unquote, maybe help stop this, which we know it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Um, her words, you know, were incredibly profound and, um, I know some people have kind of said that she was going outside the bounds of what she really should have been doing. And the lawyer in me says, I don't give a fuck. Like, (laughs) you know, um, you know, the good thing is that it was a sentencing and he had pleaded guilty. Right. (laughs) So it's not like she was compromising her justice, um, to do so for women. I think that's important to know. Like he, pleaded guilty at this point right there was no question about what this was and what these women were saying they weren't accusers anymore they were they had their confirmation that what happened to them was real and inappropriate and should never have happened to them yeah um and so then especially to hear it from pretty much the highest authority that we could get to with our own cases um that assurance and that warmth and you know, just that acknowledgement that so many needed. Um, I think it helped girls who were in that courtroom, but I think it helps a lot of people outside of it too. For sure. I mean, I think it spoke to a lot of people and I will say that, (laughs) you know, this is such a terrible situation, obviously. Like I don't, I don't think I have to preface it by saying that, but I'm going to say it anyway so that nobody can yeah. pretend that I'm like making light of things. Yeah. But hearing y'all giggle when she would like smack them down like, <laughs> made me so happy. You know, that stupid letter yeah. that he wrote. <laughs> I mean, because it's like it, it almost, and it, I think a lot of survivors can relate to this. It feels like it never ends. Right. And that these these people who commit these acts genuinely, like, there's no logical explanation. Sometimes there is, um, but it just doesn't feel rational when you're in that position. Yeah. Um, about, like, why this happened to you or why someone would do this to you. Especially to see someone just, like, writing terrible things and pushing guilt off of himself, even though he pleaded guilty. Um, it was just like, we had all, we had all gone through that week and a half. So traumatized and stressed out. I, we weren't sleeping. It was terrible. And then in that moment to see judge Aquilina, as you said, smack him down 
it was almost just like a sigh of relief. And it was that moment where we had kind of left our pain all with Larry and our shame all with Larry. And it was on him. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just, remember. I kind of forgot that we were all laughing at that. <laughs> Because there were like little moments. I remember being pissed. Yeah, there were moments. There were moments where she would say something and you guys would would kind of laugh a little like, fuck Mm -hmm. you, dude. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Back to Facebook. So you did something kind of incredible. Um, And, you know, so you go to the University of Michigan. Yes. Much like the Florida schools, I get them all mixed up. and it's it's ridiculous down here. Um, <laughs> but you went to the the page for your graduating class, the class of 2021, um, and posted something on there, um, basically just to let other young women know that if they needed someone, you were there or you understood. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. Um, You know, it feels so long ago that I did that. I almost forgot I did. Um, It was, I can't remember if it was before or after impact statements, but I remember, you know, I had my tight knit, close, close group of survivors um, that we keep in contact to this day, every single day. Um, And I knew that there were thousands upon thousands of victims out there. And I also knew that there had to be just from a number standpoint, survivors on MS or sorry, on U of M's campus. Um, and for me meeting those women and having that support network was such a turning point in my healing process that I was, I wanted to do that for someone else and provide that for someone else. Um, and within you know, just from that, that one Facebook post, I think five people reached out in like two days, maybe. Wow. Do you mind um, talking about what the post said? Oh, I can't remember. (laughs) I can't even remember. I think I just said, you know, this is the situation I'm in. If anyone's interested in starting a support group or meeting up for lunch or coffee, private message me and I'll figure something out. <laughs> How do you think you've changed in the last two years? I had to grow up a lot. Um, definitely not the same person that I was before all of this happened. Um, specifically before I came forward uh, and tried to kind of take on the role of an activist versus just sitting with myself and being in pain. I tried to distract myself with advocacy work. Um, And I'm also, I hope, a lot better at giving interviews because I'm not crying right now (laughs) and hyperventilating. Uh, I I think you've... uh you've definitely gotten the public speaking thing down. Um, let's talk a little. You broke up there. I'm oh, sorry. Sorry. Um, I said, I think you've, you've gotten the public speaking thing down. 
pretty, thank you. pretty well. Let's yeah. talk about some of this advocacy work. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I know you have been a big part of the efforts to overhaul leadership at Michigan State University. Um, yes. You're part of the Reclaim MSU um, and the Me Too MSU movements. Mm-hmm. What are you hoping comes from that? Um, right now, my standards are pretty low because we've seen so little coming out of Michigan State University. Um, I'd like to see one person be fired for mishandling the cases on MSU's campus um, and the reports that were made to them. So far, no one. And it's been 18 months and counting since this publicly broke has been removed from their position uh, as a consequence of their failure to protect these women. One. I just want one. So there have been people who are no longer with the university. That's true. They were allowed to either retire or resign. Um, Most of them received full pension. Um, Right now, Nasser's boss, who's charged with four separate counts, um, ranging from, you know, criminal sexual misconduct, uh, having pornography of his own students, um, and also willful neglect of duty regarding the Nasser case. Um, he's still an employee of the university. He was allowed to take medical leave. And so they can't even revoke his tenure until his medical, um, leave expires. And this is someone who has been charged by the Michigan Attorney General's office with multiple crimes. We haven't really delved into this, but where have the failures been at Michigan State? In numbers, (laughs) 1997, 2000, 2004, and 2014, um, a handful of women over a span of 20 years came forward and told Michigan State University officials about what Nasser was doing to them and that it made them uncomfortable. And they were either never taken seriously, they were mocked, or they were silenced by the people that were supposed to protect them. Oftentimes mandated reporters who had a legal obligation to report Nasser, even if they were his friend or not, whether they believed that he was doing this or not. Um, in 2014, a woman named Amanda Tomashaw came forward and filed a Title IX report with MSU. Um, Nasser was cleared by a panel, which he hand-selected, of people who had previously covered for him in the past. And, you know, Amanda was told that she didn't understand the nuanced difference between a medical exam and a sexual assault. And as a result of that, the Title IX coordinator was promoted to their general counsel and continues to work there. Your, your story is, is a bit of an outlier from a lot of the other stories because of the fact that you were not a gymnast. That's true, but neither was Amanda. Um, 
how have you felt, even if you weren't a gymnast, about the USA Gymnastics responses to these reports? It's been really upsetting. Um, and actually, so I'm not a gymnast, but USAG was made aware of complaints made against Nasser in 2015 um, and involved the FBI in that effort, which, you know, didn't go anywhere. But they knew that the FBI was investigating him. Um, they knew that multiple gymnasts had come forward uh, with allegations against him and they failed to notify MSU, which is his primary employer. And so he was allowed to continue practicing at MSU for about a year and continue abusing girls for about a year after he was under investigation by USAG, the USOC, and the FBI. There's been legislation passed on a national level, the safe sport um, legislation. Is that is that the cure? Is that the answer? Um, I know from what I've heard secondhand. Um, obviously, I'm not a gymnast and I never went to USAG facilities, but I know that they had a file um, full of about 50 cases um, where gymnasts had came, come forward alleging abuse by either a trainer or a coach. And they just locked it in a file and did nothing with it. And so I hope that federal legislation is enough to scare these people into doing the right thing. But we're talking about really ethically compromised people. Right. Um, what um, in Michigan, what is the statute of limitations for reporting a sexual assault? You have until your 19th birthday. No matter what. Um, that's for the, sorry, that's for the civil statute. Um, the criminal statute. Oh, I want to say. It's longer. But there still is a statute of limitations. There is a statute. Yeah. I mix it up because of all this new legislation. I can't remember <laughs> what's what anymore. Well, and some of that new legislation has been spurred by you all. Um, Most of it. What, let's talk about that. You were just at the State House um, for Survivor and Ally Empowerment Day. I wasn't actually. What? I was at mediation. <laughs> oh, we'll take that out. <laughs> I was supposed to speak there, um, and then I got the dates for when I needed to be in New York. And so I had to ah. let Amanda run the show, which she totally did a great job at. And like, she, sh Killed. she shined. Yeah, yes. That. So, okay. Let's talk about some of the legislation you guys have been pushing in Michigan then. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So this legislation that is currently in the house committee was actually drafted by Rachel Den Hollander and Sterling Reithman, who are two Nasser survivors um, in collaboration with a Michigan senator. Her name is Margaret O'Brien. They looked at the problems faced by victims in the Nasser case, and they addressed them in a very um, specific way so that when girls come forward in the future or boys, 
um, they hopefully won't face the same structural pitfalls as Nasser victims did. So this legislation extends the statute of limitations. Um, it increases the penalties for possessing child pornography. It increases penalties for mandated reporters who fail to do their legal duty. Um, there's about 10 bills. And so if anyone's interested, they can, op- they can check those out. But Michigan is currently one of the worst states um, in terms of victims' rights. And this legislation drafted by Rachel Den Hollander and Sterling would bring us to the forefront of a national conversation and a national movement. Unfortunately, we're getting a lot of pushback. And one of the main naysayers so far um, has been Michigan State University, who even sent their president to the Capitol to lobby against the bills. I know I don't need to ask this question, but I just want to see how you respond. <laughs> how do you feel about President Angler? Um, I think he's probably the worst thing that they could have done um, in the aftermath of the Nasser case. And I also think his appointment sends a message to all survivors on that campus and frankly, all students um, and all faculty that their voices are not heard and their voices don't have value with the board of trustees. Um, After he was appointed, the MSU faculty voted no confidence in the board of trustees just for appointing Angler. That's how strongly they felt. They risked their jobs, their tenure, their family, their security to say, this is not the right guy. Um, And if you follow any of his actions in the aftermath, you would most likely agree. Um, You're probably familiar, but we've um, had some negative interactions with him. Sure. What what is the history? I mean, him being appointed president um, of, you know, Michigan State University and there being, uh, you know, pushback immediately. As, as you say, what, what was the history there that somebody outside of Michigan might not know? So he's known for being a bully. Uh, he's the former governor of Michigan um, from a few terms ago, and he was notorious for being um, ruthless and for stomping on anyone who tried to tell him no. Um, but additionally, he obstructed the Department of Justice when they were investigating large-scale sexual assaults in the Michigan prison systems. And ultimately, he's responsible for the largest payout for any civil case um, on behalf of sexual assault survivors in our state. I think at least 500 women who were prisoners um, were assaulted by their prison guards. And John Angler did everything in his power, including obstruct justice, to keep them from being compensated for their assaults. Did he ever face any consequences for that? Not that I know of, seeing as he is now the head of a university, a state-funded university. Right. Um, You've made a point to be at as many things as you can. Um, All the rallies, um, the the hearings in court. um, 
I've even started organizing the rallies now. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. How do you, how does that make you feel? Um, you know, I'm happy to do the work if people are happy to listen. It's unfortunate that I have to take it upon myself because I don't think any other survivor should have to, you know, take justice into their own hands this way. Um, but, you know, we are still not receiving justice to the fullest degree. And so if I have to organize a rally right before my last two exams of the school year, hell yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and your school isn't necessarily close by. No, it's about an hour drive away. Um, and so I've spent the last semester commuting pretty often uh, between the two campuses an hour each way. I think you had a fun event recently. I did. <laughs> tell, tell us about the global sports development event and, um, and about your participation. So global sports development um, is an organization um, that is equipped to deal with these sorts of um, large scale institutional athletic problems, including assault. Um, and they reached out to Nasser victims because they are starting uh, an initiative to not only, well, okay, so they're launching an independent investigation into the Nasser case. So they are a third party who will be non-biased looking into MSU, USAG, USOC and Twistars in association with um, which we haven't had yet. Um, but they're also starting an educational uh, program for kids and adults who are involved in sports programs to make sure that this never happens again and that we can create a culture in sports that is safe for the athletes, which it's not right now. And so what was the event? Oh, right. So, um, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm like, I'm like all about the work part. I'm not about the fun part. I know, but um, you have to have some fun. Yeah. You know, it was fun. They invited us, us out to LA, um, pampered us, put us up in a really nice hotel, paid for our food. Um, but most importantly, invited us to their annual humanitarian gala and awarded 23 former gymnasts and dancers um, the humanitarian award for the year. How did that feel? Um, you know, it's nice. I'm kind of, I'm not the right person to talk about though, because I am more excited about the educational program. <laughs> no, I, well, listen, that's important like too, it was, right? It's really nice to get an award and so many people do not get a fraction of what we've been given um, in the aftermath of disclosing their status as a survivor. And so I think that's really, that's a huge moment for society to say, you know, we're going to 
not only believe these women, we're going to champion them and we're going to give them a platform and we're going to celebrate them for doing some of the bravest work that this can do. Um, yeah, it was fun. It was a good night. I saw pictures and I was so happy. (laughs) (laughs) It was also really nice because I had, um, so the week before my exams, I was planning a last minute rally for resignations, um, for the MSU board of trustees. And then I had two exams on Monday and I was flying out Tuesday. And so it was like a little vacation. It was like the, it punctuated the end of the semester, um, and the end of a really hard school year for me. Yeah. I mean, so it's your first year in college and this is all going on. Yeah. How, it's, uh, how not have, easy. Yeah. How have you been able to balance it all? Um, I don't know if I have. Uh, my grades suffered a little bit this semester. I kind of just had to keep trucking in order to keep my finances in line. So tell us what you're studying in school. What What's your major? Um, I haven't declared a major yet, but I completely switched my focus. Um, I was originally pre-med coming into college and now I'm pre-law. A lot of it is due to my experience with this case. What are you thinking you might want to do? Um, I really want to be Angela Povolitis when I grow up. <laughs> so being a, a sex crimes prosecutor, um, I think that that's what I would want to do. You recently started, and by recently, I mean today, um, an internship. Yeah, I did. Are you allowed to talk about it? Um, I can't go into details, but I can tell you like about my own part of it. Yeah. Um, So I started my internship with Gretchen Whitmer for governor. Um, So she's a female progressive Democrat candidate who herself um, is a survivor of sexual assault on MSU's campus. Whoa. Uh, I and has publicly, she publicly disclosed her status on the floor of the House of Representatives. Um, perhaps the Senate. She, she came out as a survivor, definitely within the Michigan legislature, um, which is really it's a really powerful video. So like just side note, you should watch it because it's just kind of a, a turning moment, I would say in society, at least in Michigan. But she's also super committed to helping survivors in our state and helping increase mental health resources. Um, whether you're a survivor or not, sometimes we just need that. And she's really committed to making that kind of policy, which means a lot to me. Um, and I'm excited to kind of see the behind the scenes with running a campaign because I, I don't know, I'm interested in public policy after all this legislation talk. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I think you're going to have fun with that. 
it'll be really fun. Um, long days spent transcribing, <laughs> um, but it's for a good cause. So I'm totally excited to do it. And I'm, I'm interested to see where it takes me. Yeah. What other plans do you have for the summer? Um, I'm going to work on a, in a coffee shop after I get out of my internship. So Morgan, aside from working at a coffee shop, is there anything else fun that you can tell us about that you're thinking of doing? Maybe you're going to take a trip to Tampa. I, you know, that might have to be in my future. (laughs) I need some sunshine. Um, I need a sassy woman from the East Coast to get my, get my life together for me. Um, And yeah, that would be really fun. So, you know, we've talked about obviously all of the serious shit and and everything that's going on, but are there things that you have been doing or try to remember to do to kind of take care of yourself from like a self-care perspective? Um, and maybe away from the advocacy stuff because I, I feel that a lot of your energy probably goes there. Um, But I do know that, you know, sometimes we just need to, to do things for just us. Yeah. I, I relate to the conversation that we first had when we met um, where you you expressed that sleep is (laughs) a priority for you. And this like one of the first things I talk about with people? <laughs> I mean, we met under kind of unconventional circumstances. It was kind of weird. Yeah. But when you said that, I didn't really even connect to the dots that that could be self-care and like making sure that you get enough sleep to function and feel good during the day or, you know, the best you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that since you kind of framed it that way for me, I've been trying to utilize sleep as a tool for functioning. (laughs) Um, You know, I also just try to spend as much time as I can with the people that I love. And I think that's my self-care. I think that counts. Yeah, I don't, I don't do a lot of like, pampering or whatever but I think by fitting those things in um it provides me a little bit of healing sprinkled throughout the week throughout the night um sleep comes sometimes sprinkles (laughs) Um, yeah it's not always consistent but right well and I think you know I like talking about self-care on this podcast just because I think it's so easy um, especially, you know, for young women, um, working in a male dominated industry and, and trying to be go, go, go all the time and, and a little bit of everything to everyone, right? It's so easy to forget to do things for ourselves and to, to take moments to recharge whatever that is. And, um, but unfortunately the term self-care has become super commercialized. So people automatically think it means something like, you know, manicures and pedicures or, um, or buying yourself, you know, lavish gifts or, or what have you. And, um, 
spending time with loved ones absolutely can count uh, if that's what if that's what your soul needs right and um you know and sleep you know (laughs) it's so funny that that's what I talked about with you when we first met Uh, (laughs) it it struck a chord it really has stuck with me oh I'm glad then because I do think like listen I wish somebody had told me that when I was your age because the the amount of time that I didn't really put an emphasis on that you know, a lot of things in my life uh, may have been different. Um, I just wasn't self-aware enough. And I think you've been forced to become self-aware uh, given, you know, your the, the situation. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It's It's so easy in college to be like, oh, I'll just do it all nighter. Oh, yeah. Give me all the Red Bull. Oh yeah. It hurts the next day. Yeah. The next, the next couple of days. Um, but yeah, it's too, it's too easy to slip into patterns like that. Right. Right. And, you know, especially if you are going through a really hard time, uh, it can make it worse, um, from an emotional stand and like mental standpoint. Right. Um, definitely. So Oh, I'm glad that at least something I said has helped somebody. Totally. No. That makes me happy. Yeah. You, I mean, not to like get all kiss ass on your podcast. um, I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But like, you're just, I mean, immediately you were so cool and like warm and welcoming of us. And you weren't weirded out by the circumstances you didn't have that, you know, oh, that's, that's a Nasser girl. Um, that reaction that we sometimes get, um, like you're an alien or something. And I think by you being authentically you, you impact a lot of, a lot more people than maybe you think you do. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't treating you guys like, so I'm not sure if I told you this, but I got really excited when I saw like the day before I was traveling. Um, So what we spoke on Friday. So I traveled on Thursday. So Wednesday night or something, because there hadn't been a lot on social media about it that I could see. And so when I looked again and saw that you um, and Larissa were going to be there and there was Jessica, I think, was the other one mm-hmm. who I yep. I didn't get to meet her. Um, uh, but when I saw that you all were going to be there, I mean, I about like jumped out of my shoes. I was so excited. Um, wow. Because I wanted to express to you all um, not only, you know, that that you had support not that I matter, but that you had some support, you know, by some random chick in Tampa. Um, (laughs) But also like how brave it was of all of you to, to speak um, your truths. And, um, and I I was a bit in awe of you all. Um, And I think because of some of the work that I've done over the past year or so with this podcast and, and just some of the, 
the things that I can see in my future. I'm not really a fortune teller, but like I can, you know, <laughs> like things that are important yeah. to me. It re- like your stories have, like I said, have kind of lit a fire in me, um, much like the Women's March did um, over a year ago. And so it was an honor for me to meet you all. And I had to like, I'm not kidding. Like in my head, I was like, don't be fucking weird. Don't be fucking weird. Oh, Bobby Sue. Don't, oh my God. don't look at them like they're unicorns. Don't look at them like they're unicorns. Like, so like, you know, as you guys are probably not feeling super, super comfortable around all these random lawyers um, and lawyer wannabes, um, know that you weren't the only one kind of freaking out a little bit because I, I didn't, I wanted to come across as myself and not some fucking weirdo. <laughs> you did a really good job. No, like I, I felt like, like low key, we were friends after that night. Yeah, just, for sure. Oh, we're going to keep in touch. It was, it was nice. Good. And, you know, in that kind of, you know, female support and empowerment is always meaningful. Yeah. Even if it's from like a complete stranger. Yeah. And I, I mean, I had so, I had such a good time speaking, you know, and just, I could see you slowly relax as the night went on, um, which was really nice. Um, And I think it kind of became, I don't know, I get funny, I guess. And so that kind of like became like what I wanted to accomplish in the night was like to make you guys keep laughing. Um, So, yeah. um, You did it. (laughs) I'm good for something, people. Um, (laughs) So aside from trying to make you laugh, if, if people listening are alumni of Michigan State or they live in Michigan, what would you like them to do or how can they help? Um, a lot of people in Michigan have reached out and expressed support and a lot of really kind messages on social media, phone calls in the grocery store. Um, but what I would like to see a little bit more of, um, and I don't think it's asking too much, is for people to take, you know, that um, or that just spiritual movement that they felt watching the court sentencings um, and stand behind us in advocacy endeavors, in legislative endeavors. Um, take that. I guess, solidarity that they felt um, amongst us and that feeling of community and just keep the momentum going because we still really need it. Um, And I think that if there's anyone in Michigan that wants to do more, you know, there's always more we can do and we're happy to, you know, have them join our community. And then for those of us outside of Michigan and Michigan State, you know, we're not in that world. 
How can we help? Um, so it's unfortunate that this is what the institutions value. And it, it's it's more than just Michigan State, but they're really the touch point for this case right now. Mm-hmm. Um, just keep tweeting about it and talking about it and sharing articles and making sure that this doesn't go away um, because that's what the people who protected Larry in the first place really want. And, you know, just in the social sphere, keeping this conversation alive um, is so important and so valuable. How can people follow along with, with what's going on? Um, how can they follow you? And then how can they follow the, the greater, um, I guess, movement? So I'm part of the original, um, I guess, conception of the Facebook page, which is called Me Too MSU. Um, it's a hub for resources, articles, information um, surrounding the Nasser case, but also it's just a community for sexual assault survivors on MSU's campus. Um, So if you're looking for a lot of information and a lot of community action regarding specifically Michigan State, I would direct people there. Um, But if you are on Twitter and you want some um, word vomit about (laughs) how people in positions of power really need to step up their game in 2018 and catch up to where the rest of us are, you can follow me on Twitter at Father Juan Misty. And I tweet a lot um, because there seems to be an endless stream of information coming out of East Lansing. You do, but you do a good job because you also are a lot of times retweeting um, some of the local media who I saw today got FOIA requests back that were like completely redacted. Fully redacted emails from a convicted pedophile to another charged sexual predator who are both employees of Michigan state university. It's pretty amazing. Um, Yeah. It never ends. Yeah. Um, We will link um, to both the Facebook page and to your Twitter uh, so that people don't have to attempt to spell your Twitter correctly. Although (laughs) like, what is the story behind the name? So first this is, a question I get all the time and it <laughs> makes me laugh every single time. Um, I am one of the musical act father, John Misty. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm-mm. No. Okay. Well, he's, he's an artist. Um, and I really liked him when I was 14 or 15, when I made my Twitter <laughs> and father, John Misty was not available. So I went with the closest thing I could. And that was Father Juan Misty. And I just kept it because I get a kick out of seeing like media people and lawyers and um, legislators tweeting at Father Juan Misty. Like it's just, it gives me a little bit of joy every time I see it. (laughs) I'm like, you you guys aren't so serious anymore. I just took you down a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, you're hilarious. Well, thank you for being on here, for telling your story. Um, 
and just for being yourself. Uh, I really appreciate it. I know, um, I know it's not always easy. It's not, but I appreciate so much you giving a platform to this kind of conversation because it's just now starting to happen in public and it really needs to happen. Thank you again to Morgan McCall for taking the time out of her really busy schedule and life as a first year college student, advocate, um, everything. Uh, I really am thankful for her and her patience with me as I ask questions, um, but also for her friendship. She's just a really, really sweet girl um, who, woman, I'm sorry. See, I'm going to correct myself there. She's a really sweet woman who um, she sent me some some kind little notes after Simon. And, um, you know, I think she is going to, she's going to change quite a few things, I think, in her lifetime. I think she's she's got a fire that she's nowhere near putting out. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how her college career progresses and um, what good trouble she can get into. And I, I hope to be able to be a part of some of that. Please make sure you are rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and RadioInfluence.com. Big thank you to Jerry and Jason at RadioInfluence.com for dealing with me over the past month. I've been really bad at procrastinating, um, and it's been a little harder uh, for me to get my butt moving. Um, I've been in a little bit of a dark space, so they've been great and they've helped lift me up and check us out on the social media interwebs, you know, the Twitterverse, the Facebook, the Instagram, we're at LTPF pod. I am at Bobby Sue and you can email us at LTPF pod at gmail.com. And one last time, if you or someone, you know, is experiencing sexual abuse, sexual assault, or violence of any kind, please check out Rain R I N N R A I N N dot org, sorry, and the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1 800 656 HOPE. And for more information on sexual assault um, and ways that we can talk about it differently, I suggest you check out um, my part two of Carrie Potts' interview. That's episode number nine. Thank you all. And I look forward to having something new and maybe a little bit more lighthearted next week. Bye now. I'm Jerry Petock, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, 
please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>